Hello and welcome to the Feminist Law Podcast. I'm your co-host, Courtney Jones, a recent law graduate and incoming postgraduate student in law. And I'm your co-host, Clara Tokul, a recent law graduate and incoming trainee solicitor. We're both co-founders of the Feminist Law Project and passionate about the intersections of law and feminism. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Tania Cerizier, reader in feminist theory in the Department of Criminology at the University of Birkbeck and researcher in the field of gender, cultural and socio-legal studies, as well as criminology. Could you please introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for um, having me. Um, You've introduced me very accurately, that is who I am. I am a reader in feminist theory in criminology at Birkbeck and I describe my work as being interested in the cultural politics of sex, sexuality and sexual violence. So what I mean by that is that while I'm in a field that's very focused on things like law and criminal justice, what I'm interested in is the way that we understand, you know, the rights and wrongs of sex and sexuality, how that's changed and attempts to engage with the problems of sex and particularly sexual violence at a cultural level. So things like education, but also the way that it's represented in media and looking at feminist attempts, particularly to kind of intervene in public cultures. So my book, which is called Speaking Out, Feminism, Rape and Narrative Politics, looks at the history from the 1960s to today of feminists and survivors speaking out and telling personal stories of sexual violence as a way to intervene in the way that we understand sexual violence and also as an attempt to end it. You know, in terms of there's a kind of long-standing feminist slogan, break the silence, end the violence. And so what I kind of look at is what does it mean to do that? What have these stories as they've entered public culture, what have they done? How have they changed the way that we think about sexual violence and to what extent have feminists and survivors actually been able to push forward the goal of using kind of personal narrative to end sexual violence. So that's what I mean by cultural politics. And what we're going to talk about today is the other kind of another strand of my work, which is looking at consent and how understandings of consent and its relationship to sex and sexual violence change over time. Thank you so much for that introduction. And as you mentioned, for the purpose of today's interview, we wanted to focus on your 2020 article that was titled From Date Rape, Jeopardy to Not Drinking Tea, Consent Humor, Ridicule and Cultural Change. So before we delve into some aspects of that, could you please give us your definition of consent for the purposes of the article that you wrote? Yeah, for sure. So I think it's probably most useful to think about the definitions of consent that the article discusses in popular culture. And we're gonna talk about this, but I'm interested in a quite old now Saturday Night Live skit from the early 1990s, and then a very popular video that was released in 2015 um, by the Thames Valley Police on tea and consent, and the idea that consent is everything. And both of those kind of cultural interventions and uses of humor are focused on a particular model of consent, which is sometimes described as affirmative consent and sometimes described as enthusiastic consent. And it's the idea that one way to prevent sexual violence is to adopt as both a legal standard and an idea of sexual practice, the idea that both partners should ask for and receive affirmative 
I'm going to use consent to define consent, but ask for and receive, you know, permission, allowance for every and each stage of sexual activity. You know, so can I kiss you? Yes. You know, can I touch you here? Yes. Um, and that's the model of consent that I'm interested in looking at in the article. Thank you for clarifying that for us. Um, so consent in general tends to be a fine line, um, whether that is in a sexual and intimate setting or otherwise. Um, and your article seems to suggest that there has been important shifts in popular understanding of consent in terms of what it is, um, how useful it is in structuring sexual relations and what it means to know about it. So in terms of bridging the gap between date rape jeopardy and drinking or not drinking tea, to um, borrow the words from your article or from the title, what has changed and what hasn't, in your opinion? Okay, so that's obviously a very large question. So, um, so I, might, I might actually talk a little bit about the two examples. So I mentioned them before. So the Saturday Night Live skit is from, and you'll have to remind me, it's either from 1992 or 1993. I don't have the text right in front of me, but the early 1990s. And it was a period where there was a lot of public and cultural attention to sex and also to the problem of sexual violence. So in that sense, a very similar period to the last few years. Now, one of the things that became extremely controversial was the idea of affirmative consent. And probably the first time that it really entered popular culture in a big way was the example of Antioch College, which was a small you know, university in the US whose women's collective ran a campaign to get the university to adopt a student code of conduct based on affirmative consent. Now, what's interesting thinking back from the perspective of today is that when the university introduced this, it became a huge furor in the media, in the US and internationally. And basically people were like, this is ridiculous. No one's ever going to do this. You know, you can't have people in the kind of, you know, the moment of sex and passion saying, you know, can I kiss you now? Yes, can I not? You know, can I touch you here? And so Saturday Night Live, which as many of your listeners will know, is a very popular kind of comedy sketch show in the US, released a sketch called Date Rape Jeopardy. And it was based on the game show Jeopardy, which is where um, participants have to, you know, answer questions defining kind of certain facts. And so they had a character um, who was a major in victimization studies, who represented a feminist, and they had a character who was a kind of classic jock. And they were given all these scenarios and asked, you know, is it date rape? And the feminist character defined everything as date rape, basically. And so there was this idea at the time in popular culture that feminists wanted to destroy sex and also wanted to position women as always victims, you know, and men as always victimizers. And so the criticism there was that in bringing consent so strongly into everyday practice in this affirmative model, what you were doing was setting up an impossible standard that was going to end up defining everything as sexual violence. So the critique was both that it was impractical, you know, no one is going to do this. And secondly, that it was ridiculous because um, as an article in a newspaper said a few years later, you know, people were so hysterical on university campuses that they thought even a lamppost could commit date rape. So it was ridiculous. If you flash forward to 2015, 
when the Thames Police Valley, the Thames Valley Police video is produced, actually the idea of affirmative consent has become a lot more normal. It's no longer seen as something ridiculous, which is what it was in 1992. So if we think back to the US, by the time the Thames Valley Police video had been released, there was actually a set of laws saying that universities had to do precisely what Antioch had done in the early 1990s, which is have standards around sex on campus that were based on the idea of affirmative consent. And so in the Thames Valley Police video, it's set up in a way of saying, you know, this is very straightforward. So again, a lot of people will be familiar with the video, but the premise is, you know, affirmative consent in sex, it's as simple as a cup of tea. You know, if you offer someone a cup of tea, you wait for them to say yes before you attempt to make them drink it. You know, that it's a voluntary transaction. So what I try and do, and, and you know, and it goes through a range of scenarios, you know, you wouldn't give tea to an unconscious person, and it ends on this point that is, you know, if you can understand that you don't force someone to drink tea without them saying yes, it's straightforward and you should be able to understand, you know, why it is that you don't try and have sex or perform a sexual act on someone without them saying yes. So what I do in the article, <laughs> this is a very long answer to your question, but to come back to what's changed is say, you know, how did we get from a point where you know, this idea of affirmative consent was seen to be ridiculous to one where it seemed to be ridiculous that someone wouldn't understand or enact this model of affirmative consent. And so that's what the article tries to trace is to say, so what has changed? And what I want to do is say, you know, there, there's a kind of obvious interpretation here, which is, you know, this narrative of kind of progress, which we often talk about in matters of gender and sexuality. So on one level, we can say, you know, things were really backwards in the 1990s and people didn't get affirmative consent. Now we're in this moment where we're just much better about, you know, sex and understanding sexual violence. But, you know, and this is, gets to what hasn't changed. If we look more broadly than these cultural texts actually you know, whether it's on university campuses or elsewhere, you know, we still have extremely high rates of sexual violence. We have extremely high rates of sexual violence of people who know each other, you know, what was called in the 1990s date rape. Those cases, when they do go to court, they're very rarely prosecuted. If they are prosecuted, they're very rarely successful. You know, actually, we haven't really, you know, young people still tell us that they're very confused about navigating sex and that a lot of their sex experiences are negative. So, you know, we might be in a position where we've kind of changed whether or not we think this idea of affirmative consent is ridiculous, but we haven't changed the kind of cultural norms around sex and consent and sexuality in a way that improves people's lives. And so what I wanted to do in the article was say, okay, can we then use these two examples as a way to think in a bit more complex terms about what might be different and what might not be different? Thank you for, for that explanation. Um, and it, it's, it's likely that many of um, our listeners in the UK and perhaps even some of our listeners around the world will have watched the the 2015 Thames Valley Police video um, on consent and tea that that we've been discussing here and that you you discuss in your article. So, 
Um, I know we've been talking about like what, what's changed and what hasn't changed, but you know, since this 2015 Thames Valley Police video came out in 2015, um, what critical changes do you think have taken place and how, how do you think we can move past the, the simple idea of just better understanding consent and its importance to, you know, get to a place where, where people actually understand what consent is and that it's important. Yeah, yeah. So I guess, I mean, probably, and I, I'm aware I'm giving very long answers to a question, so, you know, um, forgive me, but probably to understand that it's worth kind of saying, you know, what it is that I think is wrong, essentially, with the Thames Valley Police article, with the Thames Valley Police video. And, you know, what I say in the article is that we have this situation, you know, in the early 1990s, where affirmative consent is seen as ridiculous because it's so complex. We then get to the 2015 video, and there's this idea that sexual consent is really, really simple. You know, it's a simple, what could be more simple than a cup of tea? You know, if you can understand a cup of tea, you can understand navigating sex. Now, the problem here is that actually, you know, sex and sex and consent aren't simple at all. You know, and if you think about the video, it's, um, and many, as you say, many people will have seen it, but it's animated with these kind of stick figures. So they don't have a gender. They don't have a sex, a sexuality. You know, they don't have a race, you know. They're not in any kind of contextual relationship to each other. You know, and what we know is if we think about the kind of classic example of um, date rape university campuses is that young women, particularly for all kinds of reasons, find it very difficult in actual real life encounters to feel that they can very straightforwardly say, yes or no, you know, that it's not as simple for most of us, even, you know, and, and the point I make in the article is that even if we take the example of the cup of tea seriously, if I ask you, you know, do you want to have a, a cup of tea? It's very rare for someone to just say no, you know, that's rude. <laughs> so, so we don't do it. You know, you might say, you know, oh, well, um, do you have a cup of water? Or, you know, if we change the context so that, you know, I'm someone that you want to impress or it's a formal situation like a job interview, actually, you're going to say yes to the cup of tea and then you might take a few polite sips even if you don't really want tea. So there are social rituals and social relations of power. And so the point that I make is then if we think about sex, we know that the same thing happens with sex that actually people find themselves in positions where they don't feel that they're able to say a straightforward yes or no. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. It can be that they're worried that if they say no, you know, they'll jeopardize the possibility of a relationship with someone. It can be that they feel if they say no, you know, it will mark them out as being, you know, a prude or not fun or, you know, not exciting. It could be all kinds of reasons. It might be that they're, you know, they're not really sure, you know, and that's the same, you know, it's not even that simple to saying yes, you know, people sometimes say no to things sexually they want to do because they're worried, you know, that people might gossip about them, for example. So, and I am coming to your question about how we can change things is that I think we need to 
get away both from the idea that consent is something, you know, just so strange and complicated that we can't even think about it, which is what you see in the 1990s, but not kind of go to the other direction of saying, well, there's no problem here. It's very simple. You know, people just learn to need to express themselves clearly and listen to other people. What we need, and you do see this in some examples of sexual education that have been piloted somewhere, some in the UK, but um, a lot in places like Australia, is to think about sexual consent in a broader social context. You know, it's a social interaction. We can't just imagine these two kind of stick figures chatting to each other about whether they want tea. But, you know, starting very early with children, and this is where we get into the connection with education, to build their capacities around sexual communication, to build their capacities around um, even, you know, thinking about what it is that they do and don't want in certain contexts, you know, putting that in a context of the fact that, you know, we do live in a society where, you know, men have you know more power and authority than women in certain situations you know where things like race or class also affect the way that people relate to each other so you know how do we get beyond that i don't think that simply saying oh consent it's really simple gets us there because it refuses to acknowledge the reasons that it's so difficult you know because if it wasn't then you know i mentioned before um, there's been legislation passed in the UK, in the US saying you know you need to have an affirmative model of consent. The UK's law around rape is essentially an affirmative model of consent, but just putting that in place doesn't solve the problem that when people are you know embarking on a sexual encounter, they have to navigate it in a society that's not equal, in a society where there's still a lot of taboos and shames around sex. And also, you know, they need to think about how other people are going to view that encounter, which is what happens if people do then try to go to the criminal justice system. You know, famously, especially for women, they say, well, you know, I really didn't feel like I was able to refuse or say no. The first question is, well, you should have stood up for yourself more. You know, why didn't you do this? Or don't you think, you know, you led the person on? You know, we actually bring in all these other factors. And so simply telling people it's really simple isn't that helpful because it's not. It is a complex issue. It does have to do with other issues in society. And we need to think about it as a complex issue if we're going to improve people's experiences of sex and also the social response when people do experience sexual violence. Thank you for that answer. And I do agree, consent is definitely a multifaceted um, topic um, and issue. In today's Feminist News Roundup, the Canadian Women's National Football Team has reached a tentative pay deal. However, players say that issues of inequity still need to be addressed. Also in today's news roundup, the BBC reports a significant increase in human trafficking in Northern Ireland. Women's Aid Belfast and Lisburn say they are currently supporting more than 230 female victims of trafficking compared to just 47 in 2021. Finally, the New York Times reports that mothers in Iran are fleeing the country for the sake of their daughters and highlights the story of three mothers who have already left. If you have any suggestions for this podcast, let us know directly via email at contact at feministlaw.org. Please also visit our website at feministlaw.org and follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn to keep up to date with our latest articles, 
podcasts, newsletters, and exciting news. The music for this podcast was sourced from pixabay.com. Thanks for listening.